Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 94, Review of Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, Part 2. In part one of this review, episode 93, I told you the background of Mr. Nabil Qureshi, what the book is basically about. I tried not to give too many spoilers. And finally, I discussed that he raised some paradoxes, some apparent contradictions in classical small-c Catholic Christology, which then he doesn't bother to solve, which I don't think is a good thing. In this episode, we'll move on and examine what he says about the subject of the Trinity a subject which is foremost in the minds of many Muslims who are interacting with Christianity. So let's jump right into it. On page 191, Mr. Qureshi tells us what he was taught about the Trinity as a young person growing up Muslim. Quote, Roughly, they taught me to see the Trinity like this. Christians want to worship Jesus in addition to God, but they know there is only one God. So they say God is at the same time both three and one, calling him a Trinity. Even though this makes no sense, Christians insist it is so. When asked to explain the Trinity, they will say it is a mystery and that it needs to be accepted with faith. As a young Muslim in the West, I set out to test this. Whenever I had a discussion about the Trinity with a Christian, the first question I asked was, Is the Trinity important to you? When they replied affirmatively, I asked, How important? Anticipating the response that it would be heretical to deny the Trinity. The third question completed the setup. I would ask, so what is the Trinity? And would receive the rote answer that God is three in one. Then the coup de grace. And what does that mean? I usually got blank stares. Sometimes people would start talking about eggs or water, but no one ever was able to explain what the doctrine of the Trinity actually meant. Three what in one what? And how is that not self-contradictory? My questions were not abstruse questions on a peripheral topic. They were simple questions of clarification on essential Christian doctrine. Yet no Christian I met growing up was able to answer them. That meant every Christian I encountered bolstered what the Quran had taught me about the Trinity. It was a ridiculous doctrine that merited divine retribution. End quote. So that's a problem. It's a rather embarrassing problem for Trinitarian Christians And when they're speaking in-house to one another, Christian theologians frequently complain about this, that Christians are Trinitarian on paper, only that they're practically speaking Unitarians in their actual belief and practice and prayer life. And yeah, on the face of it, this looks like a problem if people are just repeating words and really don't know what those words are supposed to express. So how did Mr. Qureshi get around this problem? He must have discovered what it is that the Trinity means. And he must have discovered what the justification for it is and why not only is not self-contradictory, but it's actually consistent and something which we have strong reasons to believe. So how does he work his way out of that? Well, he tells you in chapter 33 of his book, he's discussing how in general in science you run across some things that kind of blow your mind, things that don't seem to make sense or don't fit easily together with other things that you think that you know. And he says this, quote, There are truths about our universe that do not easily fit into our minds. My mind rested on the three separate structures of nitrate on the wall, my mind assembling the pieces. 
One molecule of nitrate is all three resonance structures all the time and never just one of them. The three are separate, but all the same, and they are one. They are three in one. That's when it clicked. If there are things in this world that can be three in one, even incomprehensibly so, then why cannot God? And just like that, the Trinity became potentially true in my mind. End quote. That's from pages 195 and 196. So exactly what is it that he's discovered? It can't be a discovery that there are surprising things in the world. I suggest that this is something that all educated people know. Or a discovery that there are things that we can't fully understand. Or a discovery that sometimes you have to believe that something is so, even though you really can't express how it's so, or you can't explain why it's so. Sure, there are truths about the universe that don't easily fit into our minds. There are various ways in which something can be three in one. You might have three parts of a whole, for instance. Or you might have something with three aspects, such as length, width, and breadth. So it's three in aspects, but it's one being. The complex entity is three parts, but one whole. Now, his nitrate example, I think, is wrong-headed. Mind you, I'm not a chemist or a son of a chemist, but as I understand it, these diagrams are supposed to be structures of molecules that can have different structures. They can be put together in different ways. These are called Lewis diagrams. And I have a link to this on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. You can look at these diagrams. It says you can make three such Lewis diagrams for a nitrate ion. And they have the various electrons and bonds in different positions. But as far as I understand... The nitrate ion isn't supposed to be in these three different states at once. These seem to be contrary states, states that a molecule couldn't be in all at the same time. It's like having your hand up and your hand down. You can't be in both of those positions at once. It's my understanding that nitrate isn't in all three of those positions at once, but that it's in none of them. The source that I'm looking at says that none of those three states are consistent with the observed properties of the nitrate ion and so none of them correctly represents the actual structure of the nitrate ion. So it's not that the ion is in three mutually incompatible states. It's not that there's a true contradiction or even a true apparent contradiction. It's that when you try to represent the structure of this thing, you can give three diagrams and none of them is, strictly speaking, correct. And there are ways that you can try to come up with a more accurate representation, but I won't go into that. So yeah, there are things in the world that could be three in one sense and one in another, and maybe God is one of those things. But who are these people who are objecting to the Trinity on the grounds that, in no case whatsoever, can there be something which is three of one and one of another? Who says that? Do Muslims say that? I don't think that they should if they are saying that. Does it follow from all this that the Trinity is potentially true? Well, look, what is the Trinity? If it's just that God is three in one sense and one in another, then no, that's not contradictory, but it's not clear what that means. So what Mr. Qureshi does is he just gives you the standard formulas that go back to the Catholic councils, although he doesn't discuss the Catholic councils. And the standard formula is that God is three persons in one being. And since person and being are not the same thing, then it's not contradictory to say that God is three persons in one being. Well, but wait, that's a non sequitur. That doesn't follow. 
our concept of person is one thing, let's say, and our concept of a being is another thing. But can one God be three persons in one being? It's maybe going to depend on what you mean by being and person. Here's what Mr. Qureshi says as an illustration. Quote, I am one being, a human being. I am also one person, Nabil Qureshi. So I am one being with one person, a human being, who is Nabil Qureshi. The doctrine of the Trinity teaches that God is one being with three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. End quote. Now let me ask, what's the relationship between this being and this person who is Nabil Qureshi? Well, they're identical. They're numerically identical. He's identical to himself. If you point to him and say, I'm talking about that being, and also that's the person I'm talking about, you have just referred to Mr. Qureshi in two different ways, using two different terms. You could also say, I'm talking about that man. I'm talking about that student, that intellectual, that Christian. But yeah, you're just referring to one and the same thing in all these different ways. Now, Father, Son, and Spirit are supposed to be three. There are things that are true of one that aren't true of the other. In traditional Trinitarian theorizing, the Father is supposed to be in some mysterious way the source of the Son and Spirit, and the Son and Spirit are not in any way the source of the Father. Okay, well, then the three of them are different. But now, one God can't be identical to three anything. Identity, numerical identity, numerical sameness, is a one-to-one relation. A thing can only be numerically identical to itself. You can never have one thing that's identical to several things. That's just nonsense. One way to help explain this is to point out that things which are identical to the same thing have to also be identical to one another. So, if A just is C, And also, B just is C. In other words, A and C are one and the same thing, and also B and C are one and the same thing. Well, identity is symmetrical and transitive, as logicians say, and it follows that A just is B, that A and B are numerically one also. So then it turns out we're not really talking about three things at all. We're talking about one thing, which is called A, B, and C. So in the case of the Trinity, for instance, if the Father is numerically identical to God, and also the Son is numerically identical to God, well, it follows logically that the Father and Son are numerically identical. Things identical to the same thing are identical to each other. This is just part of the logic of the identity relation that has been well explored by logicians and philosophers. So, the analogy doesn't seem like an apt analogy. The relation between the being and the person of Nabil Qureshi is identity. The relationship between the triune God and the persons can't be identity, because the persons are different from one another. Also, with respect to any one person, say the Son, the triune God is triune, the Son is not triune, right? So then you know that the triune God is not identical to the Son nor is the Son identical to the Father. So what is the relationship between them? What is the relationship between the triune God and the persons that are in some sense in that God? Well, this is where it turns out that standing behind one standard set of Trinitarian language, there are a bunch of different Trinitarian theories. And generally speaking, they're mutually inconsistent with one another. They're contrary claims, claims such that they couldn't all be true. 
Some people, like Dr. William Lane Craig, think that the members of the Trinity are, in some sense, parts of God. Others seem to think that they're like God's personalities or that their modes are aspects of God. Now, both before and after his conversion, Mr. Kreshi takes the Trinity to be obviously incompatible with Tawhid, with oneness, as understood by Muslims, or, if you like, with monotheism. But why is it inconsistent? I think that he thinks it's inconsistent because Tawhid is understood to include divine simplicity, that God does not have any differentiation within his being. He doesn't have different parts, different aspects. God just is his properties. Those properties are not different than each other or from him. That's the paradoxical, classical view of divine simplicity that goes back to Neoplatonism, but it is in fact adopted by medieval theologians in both Christianity and then also in Judaism and Islam. Wait, Christianity? Yeah. Medieval Catholic Trinitarians also affirm divine simplicity. Well, how can that be? Doesn't there have to be some threeness intrinsic to God if the Trinity is true? That's an excellent question. But my point right now is just that if the Trinity is, as is traditionally thought by medieval theologians, consistent with divine simplicity, then it looks like on the face of it, it might be compatible with Tawhid. Now, if the members of the Trinity are supposed to be parts of God, or if they're supposed to be different aspects, maybe it's not compatible with Tawhid. We can't go into it here, but on the Trinity's blog in the past, I've written some posts entitled Islam-Inspired Modalism. And what I'm describing there are Christian theologians down through history, some of them basically in the present day and some of them historically, who have argued to their Muslim friends that the Trinity is consistent with Tawhid, And the argument goes roughly like this. Look, you Muslims think that God has different attributes. Well, the members of the Trinity are just different attributes of God. So if different attributes are consistent with monotheism, with oneness, with Tawhid, well, they just are. And so the the Trinity is consistent with Tawhid. Now, I think this is what I now prefer to call a one-self view of the Trinity. Is that Mr. Qureshi's view? I don't know. I don't know that he really has a fully articulated view. What he chooses to do is kind of James White style to say, look, the Bible obviously implies the Trinity. And what's the Trinity? Well, it's three persons in one being. And that's it. Just kind of leave it there. But three persons in one being, look, that's just the start of the game. That's not the end of it. What do you mean by persons? What do you mean by being? Is it being an individual entity? Is it a universal divinity? Is it a particular divinity? Are the person's personalities? Are they modes? Are they selves? In which case they're also entities. Or are we just dealing with three somethings we know not what? So that's a piece of unfinished business. And look, here are three positive suggestions to Mr. Qureshi, to whom I wish all the best in all sincerity. And to anybody who wants to know, well, how should these traditional claims be understood? I've written a survey of recent and also historical ways to understand those formulas. You can find that by Googling Stanford Trinity. You'll find my article, Trinity in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. You can also Google Internet Encyclopedia Trinity, 
And you'll find a similar article, which is shorter, by Dr. Harriet Baber from the University of San Diego. And she also surveys some of the recent theories about how to make the Trinity come out consistent and how to uh, turn those formulas into a fully articulated and understandable set of claims that can be evaluated. Another excellent source, which is very carefully reasoned, is by my friend Dr. Daniel Howard Snyder, who is a very accomplished philosopher of religion, Christian philosopher at Western Washington University. And he wrote a piece for the Routledge Encyclopedia of Philosophy on Trinity, which goes through some of the most important recent work to try to make it all come out. I'll have a link to that on the blog post. You can find that just by Googling his name, Daniel Howard Snyder, and by looking at the papers that he's posted on his website. When we return, the issue of reliance on religious authorities. One more piece of unfinished business, which is a very interesting question, is that Mr. Kreshi reports in the book that when he was a Muslim, his view was that Jews and Christians and Muslims all worship the same God. Is that still his view? Well, he doesn't say. It's actually a very sensitive question. A lot of evangelicals have gone out there and strongly insisted that, no, this is not at all the same God. The Father of Jesus is not Allah. Well, it's not so clear. Look, everybody agrees that Christians and Muslims teach different things about God, but don't Christians and Muslims disagree, for instance, about whether Muhammad is a prophet of the one God? If Christians say God did not send Muhammad, and Muslims say, yes, God did send Muhammad, well, they're talking about the same God, right? And they're disagreeing about what that one and the same God did or didn't do. If Muslims are saying that God number one sent this prophet, and Christians come along and say, God number two did not send this prophet, well, there's no disagreement, right? It's consistent to say that one God sent a prophet and another God didn't send the prophet. But there is disagreement. There always has been disagreement, as I understand. Muhammad himself made overtures to various Christian uh, people and rulers and tried to convince them that he was a prophet of the one God, the God of Abraham. He tried the same thing with Jewish communities, at least early on. It didn't work. They didn't buy it. They disagreed. They didn't say, oh, well, we think you're talking about some other deity, and maybe, maybe that deity did send you. They seem to assume, these Jews and Christians, that the Muslims were talking about the same deity, just like they said they were, and they disagreed. They say, no, you're saying that God, the one God, the one true God, sent Muhammad, and we don't think that he did. And like I talked about before, it looks like, according to his own experience, Mr. Kreshi was interacting with God, with the one real God, while he was a Muslim, even while he had a bunch of, he now thinks, false assumptions about God and what God has done in the world and how God interacts with us, what God requires of us, what kind of provision God has made for human salvation. He seems to think that even when he was a Muslim, he was interacting with the God, that it was the God 
the one true God who was hearing his prayers and answering his prayers, and that it was the one true God who led him to see that the last and greatest revelation of himself is not Muhammad, but it's through the man Jesus. So it looks to me from my reading of the book that he wants to say yes, but it would be a controversial answer in the current climate in the American evangelical world. It's something that's worth thinking more about, I think, for anybody. Now, another interesting theme of this book that comes up several times in the book is the issue of authority and deference to authority and how people in Western cultures are different than people in Eastern cultures in this respect. So on page 179, Mr. Kreshi says, quote, People from Eastern Islamic cultures generally assess truth through lines of authority, not individual reasoning. Of course, individuals do engage in critical reasoning in the East, but on average, it is relatively less valued and less prevalent than in the West. Leaders have done the critical reasoning, and leaders know best. Receiving input from multiple sources and then critically examining the data to distill a truth is an exercise for specialists, not the common man. End quote. In one of his several online debates that are posted on YouTube, Mr. Qureshi strongly emphasizes this point, and he makes a big deal out of the fact that he has renounced this kind of over-reliance on religious authority. He insists, he says, on thinking through things for himself. Here's what he says. I want to start off by saying very clearly that just a few years ago, up until the year 2005, I myself used to believe that Muhammad was a prophet of Allah. I used to believe that the Qur'an was his final revelation, the whole compilation of everything that had come before, brought to its summit in the form of God's book revealed to Muhammad over 23 years. I used to believe that Muhammad was the exemplary man, and that following his every action, his every word, his every utterance, would produce in me a character that would be beyond all characters. And I used to believe that Jesus was just a prophet, yes, the Messiah, even going to come back to initiate the end of times, but not God, by any means, certainly not God. These were the things I used to believe. And I found out over time that in order to really be able to believe truly in my heart what I think is the truth, I need to be able to defend it for myself. I need to not just take what people tell me, but rather investigate, understand what is the grounding of these facts, these beliefs in truth. Are they honestly true? Or am I just taking them at face value because people I've respected my whole life have told me they're true? And that was the case. My parents told me to believe in Islam. The Imams had told me to believe in Islam. I had so many people who I respected telling me what to believe. And so I listened to them. And at a certain point, I realized I, I need to look into these things for myself. And I had been challenged to do so as well. But I was so convinced that Islam is true that I knew right off the bat, no matter what historical investigation I undertook, it would lead me to confirm the things that I had been taught about Muhammad, about Jesus, about the Quran, about everything that Islam taught me. And I figured just looking into these things will confirm what I already believe. Well, what should we think about reliance on religious authority? Of course, it's part of the human condition that we have to rely on experts and that can either be an exercise in laziness, or it can be a perfectly reasonable way to first approach any topic. I do think that in this book, and maybe this is perfectly fair, given that he was converted in 2005, and this book was published in 2014, I do think that in the book he does rely a little bit too much on some expert opinions. 
the expert opinions of evangelical apologists. So, for instance, regarding the deity of Christ and the Trinity, it's clear to me that he is adopting the common language as used by evangelical apologists. Things like talking of the deity of Christ, saying that Jesus is God, or referring to Jesus as God in the flesh, without really having a consistent and worked out view of what that might mean. Of course, it might mean a whole lot of things. And as we've seen about the Trinity, he's just formulaic. Just, well, uh, what is it? It's just three persons in one essence or one being. But that's just repeating a company line. That doesn't reflect any clear understanding of what is going on with the Trinity. Seems to me this is the very kind of uncritical reliance on religious authority that he says that he's renounced. My advice is follow through. As I mentioned a bit ago, there are a number of people who have charted forth numerous ways forward, numerous interpretations that you can give to this three persons in one being or one essence. Turns out there are a bunch of interpretations. Each one comes with its own problems. Most of them are mutually incompatible with the others. To think through it for yourself requires you to settle on one of those, or else to go back and question whether the Bible really supports the Trinity. You don't want to be too sure going in that further investigation is just going to confirm what your trusted authorities have told you. Sometimes that happens. Hopefully that happens often. But sometimes... As Mr. Qureshi knows, that doesn't happen. Sometimes it turns out that your authorities were just giving you one side of the argument. Proverbs 18.17 says, The first to speak in court sounds right until the cross-examination begins. One thing you need to do to think through this issue of the Trinity for yourself is to read not only people who say, yes, obviously the Trinity is implied by the Bible, but also to read and to carefully and thoroughly read people who say, wait a second, no, you can't get the Trinity out of the Bible. Some of those people are Unitarians. Some of those people are Catholics. Some of those people are just biblical scholars who try to stick very closely to first century or earlier interpretations. You need to hear the other side before you're fully convinced that there's an airtight case for the Trinity in the sense that only some Trinitarian theory, whichever it is we settle upon, only that theory can adequately explain what's in the Bible. We can get more specific about some things that are being assumed in this book, things which are popular to assume in these circles in which he's running. And the first of these is that the Trinity is truly an essential Christian belief. In other words, you simply aren't a Christian unless you believe in the Trinity. The only problem with this is that there were Christians before the 4th century. And it's not until the 4th century that we really have believers in a tripersonal God. This is, I think, historically well-established. People tend to kind of cover it up and slide over it with ambiguous language. People look back on those early centuries and they just think, well, it's, yeah, they're not exactly Trinitarians in the 100s and 200s, but, you know, they're marching inevitably towards the Trinity. So, you know, they're on their way. Well on their way. I just don't see it as an inevitable development at all. When we come back, doesn't the Bible teach that one should only worship God himself?
Another couple of assumptions relate to worship, that one can only properly worship God, and that it's blasphemous to worship any man. So on page 252, he reports his own agonizing about whether he should convert. He says, quote, What if Jesus is not God? I'd be worshiping a human. That would incur the wrath of Allah, and more than anything else, it would secure my abode in hell. Of course, this is exactly what the Quran teaches. In Islam, there is only one unforgivable sin, shirk, the belief that someone other than Allah is God. End quote. Well, that's indeed what Islam teaches, but let's look at the New Testament. Should you only worship God? Well, in Revelation chapter 4, there's a scene in God's throne room where everybody's worshiping God. This is what they say. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And then in Revelation 5, they bring in the Lamb who was slain. They worship together both God, the one true God, the figure on the throne from chapter 4, and in addition to God, they also worship the Lamb. And they worship them on a different basis, although they're singing to the two of them together. They worship God because he's the one true God, and they worship the Lamb because of his service to God. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God's saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. Worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To the one seated on the throne and to the lamb be a blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Okay, so there's a man. The lamb is obviously supposed to be the risen and exalted Lord Jesus Christ. There's a man who's being worshipped. It's not blasphemy. It's all to the glory of God, as Paul says in Philippians 2. Jesus is exalted, and so Jesus is worshipped because he did something which God did not do, indeed which God could not do. As Paul says, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As a result, God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What did Jesus do that God couldn't do for himself? Jesus died. God is by his very essence immortal. As Paul writes to Timothy, Before God, who gives life to all things, and before Christ Jesus, who firmly professed his faith before Pontius Pilate, I command you to obey your orders and keep them faithfully until the day when our Lord Jesus Christ will appear. His appearing will be brought about at the right time by God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He alone is immortal. He lives in the light that no one can approach. No one has ever seen him. No one can ever see him. 
To him be honor and eternal power. Amen. Should you only worship God? Well, that was the situation in the Old Testament. God explicitly says, only worship me. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. But now he's raised his son from the dead and raised him to his own right hand. To be raised to God's right hand, to be put on or next to God's throne, to seemingly share God's throne, is to be put in a position where we must worship him. That's not blasphemy. That's not disrespectful to God. That's obeying God. Christians obey God by worshiping the Son of God. Not on the false basis that that's God himself. No, it's still the Son of God. But it gives glory indirectly to God when we exalt God's Son. God wants him to be exalted. God has put him in charge of creation. So let's let go of the old Jewish assumption and the Islamic assumption that you can only worship Yahweh himself. If Yahweh himself exalts his Son to a position where we should worship him, it'd be impertinent to say, no, I only worship God. Dr. Larry Hurtado of the University of Edinburgh has made this point several times in publications and in other articles and talks. His point is that in the earliest generations of Christianity, they worshiped Jesus out of obedience to God, to the God who raised and exalted him. Here is Dr. Larry Hurtado making these points and a few others in a public discussion in 2011. The audio is a little rough. I've cleaned it up a little bit. The person taking the recording is shifting around, but I think you'll be able to understand what he's saying. That Jesus certainly, whatever his intention was, he certainly generated the sense that he was claiming uh, to be a Messiah. Early affirmation that he is Messiah, that he has been made Messiah by resurrection from the dead, cannot find a ready explanation otherwise, and and is best understood as the disciples believing that their previous hopes had been emphatically ratified by what they understood to be the resurrection experience. However, I don't think that we can account for the worship of Jesus or the level of cultic devotion that was given uh, on the basis of his historical ministry and reminiscences of that alone. And part of the reason for that is that it seems to me that, that from what I understand the key texts, such as Philippians 2 and subsequent texts, it seems to me either explicitly or implicitly root the justification or the veneration of Jesus in the action of God. God has highly exalted him and given him the name of the case of God, with the intention of adoption, every nation God every nation. So I think that, uh, that the early Christians' fundamental answer to the question, how dare you worship this figure at the earliest moment, would be because God says so, because God requires it. And to refuse to reverence Jesus is to disobey God quite seriously. And so Paul can describe, I think, the unbelieving Israel who doesn't uh, see Jesus as blinded and as seriously disobedient to the God of their own tradition. The point is that they root it not in, we worship Jesus because he told us to do so, but we worship Jesus because God has appointed him and requires it. So I think a very theocentric, in some sense, theocentric justification for this amazingly exalted high Christology. And so I was asked to do an article on this question a number of years ago, which appears at the reprinted in the Howell Earth book, which was, um, did, did, did Jesus receive worship in his earthly ministry? And I, I made an attempt to go through the material and, and provide an answer there. The simple answer that I gave was, no, I don't think so. 
So, for example, one of the articles that uh, one of the chapters in Jimmy's uh, Dunn's book on did the first Christians worship Jesus is a chapter saying, would Jesus have approved of early Christians worshiping him? He sent me these chapters as he was writing them, and I was sort of sending them back and making comments. And I remember sending this chapter back and saying, Jimmy, who cares? <laughs> what? What? I, I don't get it. Would Jesus have approved? Uh, what difference does that make? Because if the early Christians don't justify, don't claim that Jesus told them to do this, they claim that God required it. And he said, uh, yes, yes, but if, um, if early Christians make claims for Jesus that he didn't make for himself, then the validity of those claims are called into question. I said, I don't agree with that at all. I just don't agree with that at all. Muslims always object, where did Jesus say, I am God, worship me? Well, in my view, after a lot of study, Jesus never did say, I am God himself. He claimed that I am the Son of God. I am God's Messiah. And he didn't say, worship me. The reason was, he hadn't been exalted yet. Now, if you would have asked him, should the Messiah be worshipped after he's exalted, then I think he would have said yes. But it would have been super presumptuous before God had exalted him for him to say, worship me. Now, he is honored. He is given the kind of worship or honor due a king at his birth. And people do bow before him as they would bow before a king. But in my view, no one in the New Testament worships Jesus in the full-blown religious sense until after he's been raised and exalted. Then, as we've just heard, they worship Jesus in addition to God. And they worshiped him on the basis of what he had done in service to God. And indeed, they worshiped God by worshiping the Son of God. When we return to the Trinity's podcast, more unquestioned assumptions in this book. Do you enjoy listening to the Trinity's podcast? There are four ways you can show us some love in return. First, share the blog post for this episode on whatever social media you use, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, or Google+. Second, you can leave us a rating and a brief review in the iTunes store and at Stitcher. For step-by-step directions on how to do this, visit trinities.org slash blog slash review. Doing this will help other people who are interested in theology to find this podcast. Third, you can donate to the cause by clicking the orange donate buttons to the right of any blog post. Do you think these episodes are worth a quarter apiece? If so, you can donate a dollar each month via PayPal. And of course, any one-time gift is much appreciated. Fourth, you can send us some brief, to-the-point audio feedback for possible incorporation into a future episode. We would love to hear your question or your comment in your voice. The upload link for your audio file is on the blog post for any episode. To sum up, you can share, rate, donate, and talk back. Another unquestioned assumption I see is that Jesus' death on the cross should be understood as substitutionary atonement. As I see it, that's a theory that's been popular since the Reformation, but I don't think it best fits the New Testament. And if I'm right, then this wasn't really a view of Christ's atonement that was taken until around the time of Reformation. 
Another assumption is that to be an adequate sacrifice, Jesus had to be of infinite value and so must have been divine or God himself. Here is Mr. Qureshi again in the debate that we heard from earlier. Did he claim to be God or not? If he didn't, then Christianity falls. You can't have salvation from a man's blood. You have to have salvation from someone who holds an infinite account, able to sacrifice for our sins, and that would be God alone. Does the New Testament say anywhere that the atonement could not have been accomplished by a, quote, mere man? No, it doesn't say that. Nor does it say that the sacrificial victim has to be of infinite value or that only a divine being is of infinite value. These things were said, as far as I know, for the first time by St. Anselm of Canterbury. We did a couple of podcast episodes on this just recently. You can check out episodes 91 and 92 about that. Another idea about atonement that I see assumed, which I think this is an old idea, it's a bad idea, it's kind of come back recently, it's something that Tertullian fought against, but it's also something I see also quite often, for some reason, in British theology. It's the idea that God has paid for our sins himself. It's God himself who's died on the cross. Well, this is what Tertullian mocked as Patropossianism. No, God didn't die. God is explicitly taught to be immortal in the New Testament. God can't die. That's what immortal means. The New Testament doesn't teach that we know how much God loves us because God died for our sins himself. No, the New Testament teaches that we know how much God loves us because he sent his one and only Son, and that Son died for our sins. As Paul says in the fifth chapter of his letter to the Romans, For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us and that we still were sinners when Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by his blood, we will be saved through him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more securely having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. But more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So Paul teaches not that God died for our sins, but that God's Son died for our sins and that he was a third party. He was a mediator between God and man. He managed to reconcile us to God. Now, among my tribe, which is American evangelicals, this is a common confusion. People seem to think that there didn't need to be a mediator between God and man. Rather, it just turns out God is a nice guy. God is this approachable, friendly, self-sacrificing Jewish man. This isn't the New Testament view. In the New Testament, God is still a scary and threatening figure, even though he's also our Heavenly Father. But there needs to be a mediator between us and him, and happily, he's provided it. And that mediator is not him, it's one of us. It's the man Jesus. Now about Jesus and God, I see the same confusion of the two together where they're thought to be the same, oh, and also they're thought to be different. 
This is very common with evangelical apologists. I think back in the day, I myself was confused in exactly the same way. I also had some other incoherent ideas about the Trinity. But here's a passage, page 183, where you can see Mr. Qureshi seeming to imply that Jesus just is God, that Jesus and God are numerically one, but also immediately then implying that they are two, that they're not numerically the same. Now he's talking about Psalm 110.1, the famous prophecy that's the most quoted prophecy about Jesus in the New Testament. He says, quote, Who is God inviting to sit at his right hand? I took my search online and began looking up as much information as I could about Daniel 7 and Psalm 110. After a few hours, it was clear. Daniel 7 spoke of a son of man that shared sovereignty in heaven with God, being worshipped by all men with a reverence due only to God. End quote. Okay, so the implication here, if Jesus is getting the reverence due only to God, then that means that Jesus just is God. Jesus and God are one and the same. To put it in terms of logic, he's saying that for any X, if X is properly worshipped, then X just is God. X is identical to God. Oh, and Jesus is properly worshipped, and so it follows that Jesus just is God, that Jesus and God are one and the same. And then he continues, quote, Psalm 110 spoke of another Lord, someone who would sit on God's throne alongside God and serve as his heir, end quote. Exactly right. Alongside God. People weasel this point. They talk about two divine figures in Daniel 7. Well, sure, in some sense they're divine figures. This is a heavenly scene, but the one sitting on the throne the Ancient of Days, that is supposed to be the one true God. And then, coming on the clouds of heaven, there is one who is like a son of man, and he comes into God's presence and is given rule, honor, kingship, and dominion over all peoples, basically. He's given this everlasting rule by God. Okay, so this isn't God. This is somebody who is getting all these wonderful things from God. Yes, that's the exalted man, Jesus. That's the New Testament interpretation of this scene in Daniel 7. Okay, so is Jesus divine? Well, if divine means being identical to God himself, then no, he's not identical to God himself. Jesus is exalted. God himself doesn't need to be exalted. God is eternally exalted. Jesus is given this authority from God. God already has it. He has it to give away. Now, Mr. Kreshi adopts the argumentative strategy of present-day evangelical apologists, and he says, not only the Gospel of John, as some scholars would like to think, but every Gospel is, quote, built around the framework of Jesus' deity, end quote. That's page 184. Note the switch to the ambiguous term deity. It would seem too much to say that all the Gospels present Jesus as God, so, let's go for the more ambiguous claim that they teach Jesus' deity. And then he talks about high Christology. High Christology. What is high Christology? Does it mean that you have Jesus being worthy of worship? Then I have a high Christology. I'm a Unitarian. Does it mean that Jesus has a divine nature? Well, what does that mean? What does it take exactly to have high Christology? In any case, he says, look, the deity of Christ, whatever that means... Let's pretend we know what that means. The deity of Christ is in all four Gospels. It's also in Paul. But then he'll switch back to saying that Jesus is God himself in human flesh. So the whole vision of the book is the same thing you see in 
again, evangelical apologists of the present day, they throw down the gauntlet hard. The whole thing stands or falls on Jesus being God. And what does that mean? Well, they seem to say that he's identical to God himself, that they're one and the same, but maybe that's not right. Maybe it's just that Jesus is divine. Maybe he's part of God, very closely related to God somehow. Anyway, Jesus is divine. We have to uphold the deity of Christ. No one is a Christian unless they believe that. Well, about the claim that belief in the Trinity or the deity of Christ are essential to being a Christian, I think that that is directly contradictory to the New Testament. The New Testament tells us what has to be confessed is that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Son of God in that sense, that he's sent by God, that he was a perfect voluntary sacrifice for the sins of all people, that he fulfilled God's will in all things, including going to his death, and that God raised him and exalted him to his own right hand. Basically, that Jesus really was the Messiah with all that that job description entails in the New Testament. That's what Christians believe. That's what Christians have to confess. That is what you see in Acts. I talk more about this in podcast number 85. The presentation called Heretic, Four Approaches to Dropping H-Bombs. I think the New Testament is fairly clear about what's essential, and you cannot make a case, I would argue, that belief in a tripersonal deity is essential. That, I think, is just an unexamined assumption. When we return to the Trinity's podcast, some final agreements and disagreements, and the content of the supernatural revelations Mr. Qureshi reports in the book. Again, I think Mr. Qureshi is correct to stop following Muhammad and start following Christ. I think Christ is who he said he was, which is the unique Son of God, the Messiah, Yahweh's anointed. Not Yahweh, Yahweh's anointed. Yes, a real man, a real man who's been exalted to a place where we are supposed to worship him. Not worship him as God, that is, worshiping him whilst confusing him with God. No, he isn't God. He has a God. He tells us in John that his God is our God. And if you want to know who we're talking about, that is the Father. In John chapter 20, after he's raised from the dead, he says this to Mary Magdalene. Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Here's the interesting thing, and here's what I want to end with. In the book, he spends, I don't know, I think years agonizing, praying to God, please show me who you are. Allah, the one God, show me who you are. Of course, really what he's wondering is, should he leave Islam and embrace Christianity? Should he betray Muhammad in order to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? God answers his prayers. Mr. Qureshi is given 
a vision and three different dreams, and I won't spoil those for you. You should read the book. By the way, I'm not skeptical about experiences like that. They make perfect sense to me as a Christian that God would do that for people. And I'm aware of plenty of other experiences that people have had like that. When I look at the content that Mr. Qureshi reports, I don't see anything there that implies traditional two-nature Christology or the idea that Jesus is God himself or that Jesus is one-third of the Trinity. But read them for yourself and judge for yourself. See if you agree. Here's how he describes his early joy in reading the Bible. Now the Bible seems so full of life to him, and he's just on the edge of giving his life to Jesus. He says on page 277, quote, Over the next few days, my heart was filled with a new joy, the joy of meeting God himself. I thought I had known him my entire life, but now that I knew who he really was, there was no comparison. Nothing compares to the one true God. Some might ask why I did not just go ahead and recite the sinner's prayer. The answer is quite simple. I had never heard of the sinner's prayer. All I knew was that I loved the God of the Bible, and so I pursued him more and more by reading as much as I could. End quote. Then he continues on in this vein, and as he's describing this period in his life, he starts to alternate the words Jesus and God as if he thinks those are just two terms for the same one, the same being, the same deity. But then he reports his own prayer of conversion. He says that he prayed, quote, I submit, I submit that Jesus Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, he came to this world to die for my sins, proving his lordship by rising from the dead. I am a sinner and I need him for redemption. Christ, I accept you into my life. End quote. When he did that, he made the deal. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, in the New Testament, that's the Lord Jesus, is saved. When he made that prayer, he acknowledged Jesus as the risen and exalted Lord, the Savior of all who call upon his name. I'm happy to say that everything in this prayer is something that I completely agree with. And I'm not a Trinitarian, I'm a Unitarian, because I think that's what the Bible teaches, that the one true God is the Father himself. It's not the three of them together. I think that Mr. Koreshi made the right choice. I think he was guided by the mercy of God, despite his confusing together God and the Son of God, like many people do, like, in fact, I used to do. But that's far from being some kind of unforgivable sin, to confuse God with his son. Now, if you should happen to be a Muslim who is investigating the claims of Christianity, I have to warn you about something. Christians, God help us, can be some of the most overconfident speculators around. There are Christians who will tell you that to be a Christian, you have to believe that the earth is 6,000 years old or that there's no contradiction between any two statements in the entire Bible, in the original manuscripts, which we don't have anymore. There are people who will assert that to be a Christian, you have to believe that God comprehensively controls all things. In fact, before creation, God determined the fate, the ultimate destiny of every human. Sometimes this is called double predestination. There are Christians who will tell you that it's essential for you to believe that God is timeless and incapable of any sort of change. And these are all things that Christians vehemently disagree about between themselves. And that's long been the case, and all the Christians know it. So we've gotten into the bad habit of saying that things are essential, which are not essential according to the original sources. As far as I understand the New Testament, 
To follow Jesus, to follow the teachings of the apostles, you do not have to believe that there is a tripersonal God. You do not have to believe that Jesus is God himself, or even that Jesus has a divine nature. You do have to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And the job description for the Messiah involves rather more than you may be assuming. It involves dying as an atonement for human sin, being raised back to life by God, and being exalted by God, as we've been discussing. So do what a diligent inquirer should do, which is read the original sources for yourself. See what they say is essential to Christian belief. I have some podcasts also that could be helpful on this. Episodes 52, 53, 54, and 55 are all about a famous early modern Christian philosopher named John Locke and his careful investigation of what, according to the New Testament, is absolutely required to be a Christian. So again, I love the book. I applaud this book. It's a bold book. If you're a Christian, you can't read this book and not be on the side of its protagonist, Mr. Nabil Qureshi. I wish him all the best and all the best in his ministry. I pray that Muslims would reconsider, that they would ask whether they should follow Jesus or Muhammad. They would like to think that you can follow both. Well, the Christian tradition has always disagreed with that. It looks like you have to pick one over the other. This book, for its flaws, I think, is going to push people to make a choice. This week's thinking music has been Vibe Merchants by The Mind Orchestra. You can hear this entire track at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.